0: Hi, I'm Karen Stiller welcome to the faith today podcast
1: and I'm Bill Fladares Karen I heard your guest you had a good conversation with Jeff Crosby can you tell us a bit about that
0: I did Jeff Crosby is such an interesting guy with so much experience across the Christian publishing industry he's currently president and CEO of the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association and he came to the ECPA from being publisher at IVP which used to be called Interversity Publishing of course and now is known as IVP. So he knows a lot of people to the world and he's also an author himself and we touched on that as well.
1: Wow it sounds like an interesting person to pick their brain and to ask them about how the book world works. I'd be interested to hear how his personal writing fits into all that. He probably can take a lot of advantage from all of his experience with others to do his own work.
0: Yeah, well, I'm sure it made him much more maybe grounded and realistic with his expectations as his own book came out, which is a lovely book called The Language of the Soul, Meeting God in the Longings of Our Heart. I really enjoyed his book. You know, he's a very thoughtful reader, and I would say a writer's writer. And by that, I mean he's someone who's incredibly subpolem on Facebook, and he's always you know showing off other people's titles and encouraging really the role of spiritual reading which is another thing we talked a lot about so i think this podcast well it's great for everybody but especially if you're someone whose spiritual life has been impacted by authors and by great books i think this conversation will be really interesting for you Jeff, I would love to first of all talk a little bit about the Christian publishing landscape. I read a Publishers Weekly article recently that said the industry was valued at $1.2 billion in 2020. So is the Christian publishing scene as healthy as that figure makes it sound?
1: That's an accurate figure. Uh, it's not necessarily just Christian publishing, but religion, uh, more broadly speaking but certainly the christian subset of that is the largest and has been uh, for some time the last 9 months or so have not been kind to the category things have dipped down you know between 4 and 7% in calendar year 2023 but it's been particularly hard the last 9 months or so is it healthy i would say yes it's healthy it's definitely filling the effects of a single customer, and we both know who that is in both Canada as well as the U.S., Dominating, so dominating the retail landscape, internet retail landscape, that when they sneeze, we all catch a cold. We're not too worried at this point that the year has shown a decline after a couple of years of steady growth, really even the COVID years our category continued to grow. So this is probably a corrective year. Okay. But overall, the category is quite healthy, yeah.
0: But didn't you have a book come out in the last nine months, Jeff? This doesn't seem fair.
1: Uh, (laughs) I did. It came out in May just as things were kind of turning south. So who knows what effect that will ultimately have. I'm hopeful by the time yours comes out, whatever corrective... (laughs) we're in the midst of is well behind us.
0: Let's hope. So when you talked about the sneezer, we're talking about Amazon, right? When you talk about the giant, yeah, such an impact. Because Christian bookstores, they're not much of a thing anymore in Canada. I know there are a few, but what does that
1: seem like in the States? It's the same here as it is in your country. And I think you were a little bit ahead of us in terms of the decline when you lost R.G. Mitchell family books, and others. Later, we lost the large chain family, which would have been akin to Mitchell. At one point, we had between eight and 10,000 Christian retail bookstores, although we know they carried a lot of sideline materials. Now, it's more like 800, and some of those are not very focused at all on books. So yeah, it's been a seismic shift in the last 15 years.
0: Yeah, that is so interesting. When I I went back to school a few years ago, and I did a master's in writing. And within that program, the topic of the religious publishing world came up. And one of the faculty said, Oh, yeah, they really like to read about themselves, (laughs) which I thought was so funny. And I almost I, of course, I was trying to be polite, and I wasn't quick enough on my feet. But later I thought, I think it's because we like to grow and we like our authors. But tell me why you think the Christian publishing world is generally productive and flourishing.
1: Well, I, you know, on my good days, I like to believe that what Is being published is meeting some need in the world. There certainly is celebrity publishing that goes on that will kick up the overall sales. You know, if someone's selling a million copies or something like that, you know, it picks up the total numeric picture. But I believe that the growth over time, and I go back to 1983, my first year in this work was in September of 83. So I just crossed the threshold of 40 years. And that's, that's my vista of viewing all of this. And I think that throughout those four decades that there has been a commitment from Christian publishers to try to meet needs, to try to facilitate conversation. Certainly, there are Christian publishers who throw fuel on the fire of culture wars and things like that. But I, I'm saying when we're at our best, were really about meeting needs and suggesting ideas for consideration, and not just uh, on an academic level. Though I did a lot of that in my time at University Press, but more popular level books that are talking about issues and ideas and doing so with some sense of biblical wisdom and some sense of grace. It's not the growth and the flourishing isn't because the companies that produce. These books are necessarily well healed or you know, deep pockets to finance things. But I think that there is, by and large, a missiological nature to what we are trying to do, at least when we're at our best.
0: I love that phrase, "when we're at our best." That is a great way of of saying it. And I wanted to ask you about the publishing of big-name people and, you know, the celebrity culture, which is pretty particular to American evangelicalism, I think. It's not that we're immune to it, and it's not that Canadians don't read a lot of American evangelical books, that's for sure. But is there a little more caution now in the air with publishers choosing to publish someone just because they have the biggest church or something, given what we've seen with people you know, falling, so to speak?
1: I sure hope so. And I would say I believe so. I just had a woman named Caitlin Beatty, who happens to be the editorial director at Brazos Press in Grand Rapids, Michigan, but she's also an author, a former journalist with Christianity Today. And I invited her to speak at the ECPA C-suite symposium. And I did that because I was so taken by her book, Celebrities for Jesus. I believe the subtitle is something like our personas, platforms, and prophets harming the church. Yeah. And so here is a woman who is working within our industry, if I can call it that. And she's publishing a book that is being given birth by a member of our Christian publishing industry. And it is a Profound critique of the very thing that you're talking about, and I had her come and I, in September in San Antonio at this event, and in her opening remarks, she said something to the effect that I think Jeff Crosby invited me to come, so that I could say things that he wants to say, and, can't. <laughs> and that that took me back just uh, for a moment. I thought, wait a minute, I I've been saying things like this but yeah. but I get what she was uh, what she was after that it is it is hard for those of us who are in the midst of Christian publishing to critique our sisters and brothers who are also doing this work with whom we may take issue with some of the you know the focus on these big name celebrity oftentimes probably shouldn't have said that but sometimes they don't even write their own books mm-hmm. um, And yet there is a a profitability uh, factor for a time. I think there's a reckoning uh, going on. I think that a lot of us doing this work are really taking a hard look at the platforms that we're requiring, or at least we're often asking for from our authors and and taking a step back and looking. Caitlin talked in her session about a three-legged stool about... You know, the the quality of the writing, you know, the importance of the idea and humility. And that three-legged stool versus how many Twitter or X or whatever it's going to be called followers or Instagram followers you have. I think it's a much more Christ-like stool to be sitting on or or to be standing behind than the alternative. So uh, to answer your question, that's a long digression. I think there is a a reckoning going on. And I think it's a good thing.
0: You know, it's so interesting that humility would be one of those legs of the stool because my experience as a first time author a couple of years ago was this work of pushing the book out into the world and almost expecting my friends to share and post and review and, you know, give the star ratings on Goodreads and Amazon and so on. It's so painful, (laughs) and and it's across my mind that other people don't get to do this with their work, that they don't get to ask their friends to make their careers better or something usually, and it just feels so strange as a Christian author to do that, and yet that is what we're asked to do by our publishers.
1: Uh, You know, I was grateful when I began meeting with Broadleaf once the editorial work on the language of the soul was done and I shifted to marketing and publicity. You know, I just had a candid conversation with their, their team. And I was delighted when I was told, you know, we only want you to do that which you deem authentic to who you are. It was music to my ears. And even with that release or that permission from them, you're right. You probably were one of the people asked to do some kind gesture, uh, and there were a dozen or so others, and it did feel odd. On the other hand, most of them were very gracious in in saying, I'd love to help in whatever, whatever way I can. So, you know, the old phrase, it takes a village is right with books. Choosing the people that you wish to help you or to come alongside you is important, not just the people that you believe Uh, may deliver the most number of, uh, you know, the most sets of eyes, but who really cares for your message? Yeah, Who's been impacted by your work? Yeah. Who kind of aligns with the content of the book and will find joy in helping champion, but it's a tricky thing. And I I much preferred being on the publisher side of the table.
0: <laughs> well, let's talk about that. I would love to hear what that journey's been like for you to go from publisher and, you know, publishing executive
1: to writer. Well, I, I've written all of my life. I mean, dating back to being a, a little kid and particularly from high school on when I edited the high school newspaper, the college newspaper, and my first job was working as a sports editor of a daily newspaper, and I thought I was going to cover Major League Baseball and maybe make it to the Sky Dome someday and cover your Blue Jays. But uh, alas, not long into that career felt a call into working with Christian books. Mm. So as I mentioned, that September day, 40 years ago, opened the door of a bookstore and have been doing this work one way or another ever since. But I kept writing, I write to know what I believe. I write to know what my questions are. I write to know what my anxieties and fears and worries are. So I have, I've just kept doing that. And usually it was a magazine article here or there, writing something online, oftentimes doing it gratis as we writers are prone to do you know, not looking at all for compensation. But about 15, 20 years ago, I began working on this uh, Portuguese word, saudade, and trying to tease out this word that came to me through uh, jazz and bossa nova music and fado music. I say in the book that while I've worked in the world of books all of my adult life, music's the language of my soul. And I encountered this word, wondered what it meant, and ultimately did the connective work to our idea in the english language of longing and so i just began noodling on that journaling and beginning to put uh, chapters together and it was just prior to the pandemic hitting that i thought it's time to let this out so i sent it to a number of publishers i sent it to three or four where i had the closest friendships and i thought i bet one of them will say yes all four of them turned me down, <laughs> and I thought, "Oh my goodness, awkward!" <laughs> uh, even if even if my closest friends are saying, "No, what does that mean?" And what I, what I actually did after the initial impact of the very courteous no's, you may have yes. gotten some of those over. The oh years, my goodness, so many! After that initial shock wore off, I thought, "What is this telling me?" And I realized it was telling me that this work was really more ecumenical than evangelical. I, I was putting it out into the safer space. So I, I retooled and sent it to three more and all three made offers. Oh, wow. And so to, to answer your question of what was it like then to be on the other side, the writing was the easiest. It was not easy, but it was the easiest part, mm-hmm. you know, communicating, uh, committing things to paper and then sending it off. I don't think I had as much anxiety about all of that as I expected. And then when marketing picked it up, kind of like I said, being that having that release of do only that which you uh, deem authentic to who you are was helpful. And I, I think it's partly because I worked as a publisher for so long. I know how hard it is to get lift on a book. I know, you know, most books sell a couple thousand copies, you know, if you're lucky. Um, and so I just, I, I haven't worried a lot about, okay, how many is it sold? You know, how many reviews do I have or anything like that? I think being involved in the industry helped to lessen some of the anxiety, but the one part, it's that platform and, the you know, putting myself out in front. So that that's the piece that's been the mm-hmm. hardest. It's easier to be on the on the publisher side of the desk where you're the one you know posing the questions and offering the feedback and that sort of thing to be out talking about the book you're a friend so it's nice to be on a podcast with a friend but you know to talk to strangers about you know these things that mean a lot to you about concepts about fear and about loneliness about uh, friendship and forgiveness That's been the hardest part. So releasing the book, not a problem. Not worrying about how well it's selling or not, not a problem. But the self-promotion and uh, publicity and and all of that has been, whoa. Uh, Now I know how all of my authors feel. (laughs) Yes.
0: Yeah, you'll be very empathetic moving forward. But yeah, that vulnerability, that transparency, but that's what makes the work so valuable, too, and, and comes down to the, the worth of writing in the spiritual life. Like, we can help each other so much. And I just become more and more convinced of that as time goes on. And as, as I read more, the ro- books have always played a huge part in my life, as I know they have in yours. In the book, you talk about the road to Emmaus experience as a helpful way to understand Saudaji,
1: Did I say it right? Yeah, I think so. Very, very close.
0: (laughs) Tell us more about that. Help us understand.
1: Yeah. So the word saudade is a Portuguese word, as I mentioned. There's no English equivalent. Hmm. As far as I know, there's not a French equivalent either for your French-speaking audience. It's often called an untranslatable emotion. But the best we can do is connecting it to our idea of longing and when I began to really put this book together and began to send it out, among the first people I talked to was a, a gentleman from a small village south of uh, Sao Paulo in Brazil, uh, who I worked with at InterVarsity Press. So he was born and raised in Brazil, though he's lived in America for the last eight years or so. And I went to him and I said, De Joquina, I, I want to say this word to you. I don't know if I'll pronounce it right, but. I just want to know what is it what does it mean to you and so i said saudaji and and tears just filled his eyes he's a, a rather passionate emotion emotional man to begin with but he's do you, you know this word you know this word oh that word means so much and and it was actually from him that this idea of you know the man and we don't know if the other person was a man or a woman but you know, walking the Emmaus Road and Christ appears and then is gone. And what Joaquin said was, you know, I, I believe they felt so They hmm. They felt this this deep longing for that person that had, had meant so much to them. And so, you know, when jo, Joaquin said that to me, I thought, oh my goodness, that never occurred to me. And I realized how much I view even scripture through a western or probably an american lens so that's where it came from is from my friend joaquin who probably as much as anyone inspired me to to continue on and to get this book done but but what i try to do with the in the book with that word and then the 10 longings that are connected beginning with a longing for home and concluding with a longing for heaven is that you know god meets us in the midst of those longings in the midst of our saudade you know a longing for a, a person a place a time that we once knew and we want to know again so uh, hopefully i have handled it well i'm sure a portuguese writer would would be able to go even deeper but that's kind of it came through music and then was the seed was watered through my friendship with Joe Keen and now it's in the world doing whatever work it does.
0: I think I still have this relic, maybe from some stern Sunday school teacher when I was a child, that longings are to be squished down (laughs) and sacrificed or something. But Your book, The Language of the Soul, Meeting God in the Longings of Our Hearts, I mean, sometimes subtitles aren't great, your subtitle is great, because it really captures, I think, what you're showing us, that our longings tell us something important about ourselves and about God. That is so refreshing and beautiful. Can you just explore that a little bit more about how our longings lead us to God and not they're not a distraction? They're a doorway, I think
1: yeah, in a lot of places where I've been out talking about this book and the ideas in it, you know I asked the question of people in a, in an audience whether larger or smaller, have you grown up thinking that longings are a friend or a foe or are they both? and the the conversations that have arisen out of that have been really, really beautiful I, I think. The most common response is that they're both, but for some, the very idea of us tending to our own longings is anathema. You know, it's, it leads its self preoccupation and its selfishness, and at best, or leading us into unfaithfulness. At worst, the writer Ronald Rollheiser in his book *The Holy Longing*, I believe his quote is that. Our longings are our spirituality, what we do both with both the pain and the joy of our longings. That is our spirituality. I just believe that we as human persons, are we're wired with longings. And there are, there are other words in other languages. C.S. Lewis talks about this using a, a different German word. We're wired with the longings. And even if we do try to, as you said, squish them down, believing from our flannel graph Sunday school classes, that's what we're supposed to do. They pop up, they pop out. They're going to gain our attention one way or another. And so what I'm suggesting is that there are Christian spiritual formation practices that have enabled me, and I believe saints and sinners that came before me and that will come after me, to tend to the longings of the soul. For example, the chapter that I, the hardest one to write was the chapter on fear and anxiety. In that, I believe the two practices that I connect to tending to that longing, this deep desire to be free of unhealthy fear and anxiety, are the daily examine, you know, coming out of the Jesuit tradition and the stations of the cross. So it is in the midst of, for any of these 10 longings, well, with the exception of heaven, in the midst of the longing for these things, there have just been uh, tied in and tried and true practices that have enabled me to, to tend to those longings, both the joy and the, and the pain of them. So that's what I hope it cultivates in the lives of others you mentioned heaven your book you have the
0: 10 longings but your bookends are home and heaven why was it important to structure the book like that
1: i honestly as a longtime publisher karen i should know the answer to that i'm not sure i just believed i knew the structure interior longings exterior and eternal i knew like i saw that in my my mind i i I felt that almost from the start. You know, these are this is the way to organize the whole, but why home first and and heaven last? I can only tell you, I think it probably is rooted in some reading of Richard Foster and a a book uh, probably 20, 25 years ago about that heaven is our heart's true home. It's not one of his better known works, Celebration of Discipline and Streams of living water are his best known. But I think I was influenced by that. The idea that it's not a preoccupation with heaven and therefore we need not do anything here on this earth. It's not like that at all. It's more that probably this side of heaven, whatever, we really don't know a lot about it. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot about it. But whatever that is and is like, That is where we will most truly and finally be at home. And yet, we're living in the here and now. The opening chapter just wrestles with being someone who has never felt totally at home in this world. It may be rooted in fourth grade when I went to four different schools in three different states in the fourth grade, and I wasn't a military kid. It's just our family moved that year four times. It could go back to that and just the impact that that had on me. I'm not sure, but in my mind's eye, I felt like those interior, exterior, eternal, and then after that, I thought, okay, home and heaven. Those are the bookends. We'll see how that goes. So
0: Well, I think it worked beautifully. and um, I had this question, which I think now I look at it so silly. It was, tell me about your interest in heaven, <laughs> because you spend a fair bit of time in heaven. That's a, you know, that's a good sized chapter. I thought it was very special and brave because you're right. We don't know, but we, you know, we can intuit a few things.
1: Yeah. So many of the passages that talk about heaven in, in the Bible are actually, it's more about the cosmos, more about the, the dwelling place of God. And, you know, it's, it's very ethereal. And, I didn't grow up in the church. Many of your listeners uh, may have done that. I was, you know, I came to faith as an adult. But when I did, most of the sermons that I heard as a young adult on heaven were really more about hell, about the thing to avoid and the fear and things like that. And so I wouldn't say I came to the writing with a very healthy view or deep understanding. And so Like I said earlier, I write to know what do I believe and what are my questions. I thought about leaving heaven out because you can easily get yourself in trouble talking about (laughs) it. But something told me that connecting home as Foster did to heaven was, it was worth the risk. I think one of the other things is, as I referenced briefly in the book, a person who did lead me to faith as a teenager later died by suicide. And that just, for a period of time, it sort of wrecked me. I mean, this person who had told me about purpose and joy and, you know, hope and all of these things that, that felt so beautiful and so important, it, it was only four or five years later that, that he uh, took his own life. Mm-hmm. And so I think I, as was true of his family, who I remain in touch with, Um, they didn't really grapple as, as so often happens with death by suicide. You just kind of, you don't talk about the people, you don't think about it and you just kind of compartmentalize. And I think I did that as it related to the person who had told me for the very first time in my life about Christ, about scripture, about salvation, about hope, So I think the writing of the chapter was in part to finally come to terms with that. And I've had a beautiful conversation subsequent to the book being out with that person's uh, mother. Oh, wow. um, Where for the first time, we have actually been able to to talk about her son. And Mm. if nothing else happens as a result of having included that chapter, that will have been worthwhile. That's beautiful.
0: Well, it helped me. You write about the role of music in your book. Your book contains playlists, which is so cool. And I know you're writing a book about music right now, and I think the role it plays. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, it'll come out in, I think, the fall of 2025. The working title is The Spirit in the Sky, Popular Music, and the Search for Transcendence. It could change. The title is a rift on a, a 1974 song, I believe it was. I remember it well. Norman, Green, <laughs> Norman Greenbaum. So even Canadians, right? You would have known that. Oh, yeah. You know, which probably had no intention of actually ever being in a book someday by a Christian author. But nonetheless, The Spirit in the Sky, popular music and The Search for Transcendence, where I, I'm looking at 18 artists, most of whom are... Fairly commonly known, at least among boomers and and hopefully Gen X, and then maybe their children or grandchildren. So uh, it's divided into three sections again, a singer songwriter. So they're an artist like Bruce Coburn from uh, Ottawa, Canada, mm-hmm. originally will be there and, and Bob Dylan and others, Van Morrison. The middle section is bands like U2 and the Beatles with a special emphasis on George Harrison. And then the third section is R&B, Bill Withers, Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin, and people like that. And what I'm trying to do is, it's almost like a flip of the language of the soul where spiritual formation was the primary and music was sort of a secondary or, or supplementary. In this case, the music is primary And the spirituality of those artists, many of which were not Christian, of course, but at least my take on their spirituality and how that impacted uh, multiple generations, including myself. Uh, It was through music and this friend that we spoke about a moment ago that I came to faith. It actually wasn't through books. Books came later. So uh, the uh, chapters will have Brief biographical vignettes of each of the artists, but mostly it'll be kind of mining the spirituality resident in their songs. And then, you know, how did that impact uh, people like me? So. It's a fun project.
0: Yeah, I will look forward to reading that for sure. When I talk to you, I mean, we share our love of books, of course, so I guess we're kind of book nerds. But when I meet somebody, and this this is like kind of a confession, and I'm sort of becoming friends with them, and I discover that they don't read, I almost yes. feel like, why go any further with this? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I guess we can't really be friends. Reading is just so central to some of our lives and reading as a spiritual discipline. I know you believe in that. Let's encourage our would-be friends out there who maybe aren't big readers or maybe they've fallen away. A lot of people have just fallen away with digital stuff. Encourage us in our reading.
1: Yeah. Well, that's actually the next project that's going to come out is on that very subject, so I'm I'm kind of in the in the midst of that even more than the music i believe books change lives even though i I just acknowledge that you know music was at the point of the spear and then books came shortly thereafter i believe that they change lives i believe that they broaden in a way that almost nothing else does perhaps travel might be another way it broadens our understanding of the world it broadens our understanding of human persons. I remember traveling to Kazakhstan on a, a short trip with, as part of a faculty of a Christian college, and you know, never imagined I would ever be in that former Soviet republic, and, but doing so and living there for for a month and encountering the people and the culture and the food and all of that. I think in a similar way, books do that. They open worlds of wonder and of understanding. So, I mean, that's the best apologetic message that I can give you. I think there's all kinds of neuroscientific reasons as well in terms of what deep reading does to our brains, but that's kind of boring compared to just uh, opening a world of wonders through reading. And, And I would include audiobooks now. I mean, I'm agnostic about the format. I myself am print, which is why I'm surrounded and by stacks of books and bookcases and things are falling on the floor around me. So I'm I'm personally a print reader, but I'm ag- agnostic about the format. But what I believe is deep reading is the thing. So not just not just read to say we've done it. Oh yeah, checking off a box, posting a good reads, but spending time and I journal when I read. So I have some some sense of a record of what spoke to me, and I can go back to that time and again. Those are some of the things that come to my mind. The, the most interesting people that I meet, and including people like you, are readers, and they're curious. Their minds are alive, their hearts are alive, and when I do encounter in my life that rare person who will confess to me that they're not a reader and I do get them now and then. You know, I think, oh my goodness, what you are missing. Here, let me put this book in your hand and try to convert them. Yes. And uh, <laughs> I, I'm never gonna stop trying to do that.
0: I am with you. Jeff, thank you so, so much. It's just so fun to talk
1: to you today. It's a joy to be with you, take care. Thank you for listening.
0: Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed
1: it, please rate or share it.